It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. You know what I mean? It just doesn't compute, you know? The law is the law. Peter, this is in our hands. I mean, it really is. People were there. We will continue to raise our voices. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Good morning, Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on this Thursday morning. And what a morning it is for Ireland. And more importantly, what a morning it is for Cork. Massive success at the Olympics this morning when Skipperine rowers Paul O'Donovan and Fintan McCarthy scooped the gold in the rowing. The first gold for Ireland in this Olympics and the first Olympic gold for Irish rowing. Huge celebrations in Skibbereen this morning. And we'll be, we will be going live to Skibbereen in a few minutes minutes. But other ta- also, can I just say as well to Balancholic Sunita Puspura, she was also competing in her race this morning and she's no doubt an inspiration to many. She made it into the B final. So well done Sunita on representing our country and you did us proud. Other topics coming up this morning. Are you a young mum suffering from female incontinence? We'll have some advice for you. And if you're planning on getting engaged in the not so distant future, are you looking for a traditional ring or is a watch more your thing? Let us know 1850 715 or 083 oh, Did I say 96 again? <laughs> Sorry, I've just been caught up in the excitement of the Olympics. And joining me now is TJ Ryan, who's the club secretary of the Skibbereen Rowing Club. Good morning, TJ. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? Well, what's the atmosphere like there this morning? Uh, uh, I'm actually <laughs> too tired to take it in at this stage, but <laughs> it's uh, live. I'm out here at the club and every car there's blowing horns and just everybody's delighted for for lads and bringing home the gold. I mean, like, I think when we were watching it in the in the early hours of this morning, you know, the, the lads seemed to have done their tactic that they always do where they were kind of holding back a bit, but then they just came in at the last minute, which really just adds to the excitement when you're watching the race. Well, rowing is different. The lads actually have a probably a unique style in that they do practically even splits. So mm. every 500 metres, they're going the same speed. That's what happens is the other crews go out fast to try and get ahead of them. 
and hold ahead of them, whereas the lads are just going the same speed. So by halfway, they're pulling up on them, and for the second half, they're pulling away from them. The Germans put in a great performance last night to try and hold hold us as long as they could. And like it's a technique that seems to work for them, and it's, um, I believe, a technique that's being watched by rowers all over the world now. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's it, that's like they set a world record the night before in the semifinals. Hmm. So it's a technique, and they were close to it two years ago as well, and three years ago in Plavsev. So it's a, a technique that's working. Their race strategy is very good. And there's nobody can live with Paul and Gary or Fenton or anyone once they get into that swing, you know. And I mean, for anyone who was in the club last night watching it, um, this moment where they won must have been um, huge excitement. We might just have a clip here. It's um, the the commentary last night from or this morning by RTE's George Hamilton. Bowman hosed. They're ahead by a length. It's Ireland from Germany, and history is made on the water in Tokyo as Vincent McCarthy and Paul O'Donovan win gold. Gold for Ireland. Gold for Ireland. Silver for Germany. And the Italians come home in third place. And that is one more chapter of magnificence from the men from County Cork. How does it feel listening back to that? <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Like, I was so proud to be here last night at the club with... Um, like we're a young club, we're only fifty years on the go, and one of the club founders was with us last night, and our first international athlete was here last night from nineteen seventy six, and it's just to see where we've gone from there, from starting under a bush up in Dealish Pier to the clubhouse we have today, the bunch of athletes that have just gone on the water, and they have the added drive now to produce for the future, and it's just amazing. And TJ, obviously they're an inspiration to people. And indeed, um, can I just mention as well, Emily Hegarty, who was part of the Women's Four yesterday, yes. um, who came um, third in theirs in their race. But, um, you know, when you see success like this coming from a rowing club in Skibbereen, it's obviously a huge inspiration to so many young people. Are you seeing more young people getting involved in rowing? You would. We probably have about 40 to 50 youngsters between ones just starting and ones that have been at it a year or two and are just starting to move into the racing grades. Mm. So it's, and we'll probably get another influx now again in September. So it's it's great. Like, we've got to the stage now where we, where we have planning to build on an extension so we oh, can... To keep the, the thing going, so... We need to keep increasing and keep providing the best facilities we can for our athletes. And TJ, can you just hold on the line there for a minute? We also have John Field from Field Super Value in Skibbereen. Good morning, John. Good morning, Fiona. John, massive fan, a huge atmosphere around Skibbereen this Incredible. morning. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> you know, when Gary and Paul returned from Rio five years ago, it was one of the greatest nights in the history of Skibbereen. We, we have really, some... We, we are really proud of our rowing club, all the members and all the management of that club. They are just an incredible club because any, any of us go to Ireland, the first thing they'll all ask us is about the rowing club, you know. 
And John, we just have some audio here. Sorry, we just have... Hello, John? Yeah, we just have some audio here. It's from Cork Bio journalist Gavin O'Callaghan, who was at the Skibbereen Rowan Club during the race, and it captures the atmosphere in Skibbereen last night, because we've heard the atmosphere in in Tokyo last night, or this morning, so uh, can we just hear what it was like in Skibbereen Rowing Club? John, what's that like hearing that? And you know, it's just uh, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, we're so proud of you know Paul and Vinton, Emily Hagerty, and don't forget Eva Casey. She's only twenty-two, and she's now in the world. You know, where is she going to be in Paris? I, we're so proud of all of them, and of course Dominic Casey. He's the man that steers everybody. The World Coach of the Year. And we so lucky not just to have Minskibreen, but to have Min Ireland as well. Everybody is proud of everything they do, Fiona. I'd say it's they the are. talk of Skibbereen, the talk of your shop there as well this morning. All the customers oh, must be just talking about nothing I else. I watching the race from Rio, it was in the middle of the day. And we we had televisions all over the shop, but you couldn't get near them. There were <laughs> thousands of people watching it, you know. I had to watch it afterwards because there were just so many people watching. But we could gather the atmosphere. It, it is just an incredible club. It's not a one-shot club. This is a club that has been brilliant over the years. And the whole town are behind them. And how does it feel and to have the whole world's eyes on Skibbereen, small oh, town in West lovely. Cork? <laughs> it is lovely. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's it's good wishes to every one of them, uh, and Gary as well. You know because uh, it must have been tough for him. Uh, mm. There were six roars from Skibbereen in Tokyo, and there's uh, three medals back already, and you have Eva who got eight in the world. Eight in the world is an incredible feat for a young 22-year-old. So they're they're just tremendous, and we're very proud of them. Thank you, John. And TJ, just as as, uh, John mentioned there about Aoife, 22, what kind of advice would you give to anyone who um, wants to get involved in the sport, first of all, and for any parent who maybe can spot a bit of a talent in their child and wants to get them involved? just to make contact with the club and we run kind of uh, staff rowing courses usually at this various stage we put it out on our Facebook and we just take it from there and they, they start off small and build up Do they need to be eating the steak and the spuds? <laughs> That's just you know we do a lot with nutrition and everything and as the athletes get older and we teach about writing to eat and wrong things to eat you know yeah, the brown bread, the homemade soup, the steak and the spuds. Yeah, the whole lot. <laughs> Listen, TJ, I know you're all wrecked, tired this morning. Do we know yet when they'll be coming home? Will there be any kind of a homecoming for them? We're they're flying out tomorrow, so um, I think they've quarantined for five days, and then they're back. It depends on what regulations we're allowed to do. So yeah. the planning phase will probably start kicking off this week, you know. Right, OK, brilliant. Yeah, I suppose like the homecoming would be a lot different this time around because of COVID, but yeah. there will be welcome back nonetheless in some way. Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, TJ Ryan and John Field from Skibbereen this morning, thank you very much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996 on Cork's 96FM. Welcome back, Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan. And of course, we are celebrating Ireland's success at the Olympics this morning. But yesterday, former GAA President Liam O'Neill said he wants to see Gaelic Games at the Olympics. What do you think? Would that be a good idea? Finbar Lynch, good morning. Oops, we seem to have lost Finbar there. But yeah, I think like Liam O'Neill's point was that there are over 100 games, GAA games, Gaelic games played across 27 countries in Europe and that the likes of skateboarding and surfing were among the games introduced this year. And he thinks that, you know, it's a national sport of Ireland. It's played across Europe. It's a recognised sport across many countries and that it should be an Olympic sport. Finbar, what's your own view on this? Hi, Fiona. Hi, Finbar. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Um, do you agree with Liam O'Neill's view on that? I think it'd be great, yeah. I think, um, you know, it, it is our national sport, um, but to make it international and global would be absolutely fantastic altogether. You, you only have to look at the reaction of Josh Spray when he saw hurling for the first time. And, you know, we're known all over the world for our friendness, but we can be quite sporty as well. And like I said to Fergal, 15 years ago, Irish people would have grimaced at the thought of women boxing and then Katie Taylor came along and hey presto now she's you know global as well you know mm. um, once Frank Murphy stays away from it and they don't try to build a new stadium will be grand but it, I think it'll be alright I think it would be very good if, we, if, if it went Olympic I think it would be you know we should win it <laughs> because there's, there's con- every country has GEA teams now you only have to look you know the, the Cork team go out and build schools and they, they go like all the GEA clubs go on tour and mm. I don't know if, if you remember years ago they used there used to be a mix of a thing called Shinty. It was um, they, the Irish team, the best of Irish hurlers, just go to Scotland and play in their game. And they had a kind of an international series, like, like um, Australian rules football. So why not? And I mean, as you mentioned there, Katie Turner has done huge um, work for Irish boxing. And indeed, the rowers, uh, you know, I think it was in 2012, we, we only had maybe, like, we didn't have that kind of interest in rowing and it's really changed. But do you think that the nature of the Gaelic Games would change if it did become an Olympic sport? I wouldn't think it would because um, anybody who tries to take a concept of of Gaelic football or hurling, they always fail because the Australian rules used to come to Ireland and they used to bring their Australian rules favor, f- players over and, and they used to play kind of a compromise rules game. And we had, the, we had great players like Jack O'Shea playing it and uh, Pat Spillane and all those, and they excelled at it and they were actually much better than the Australians in playing the compromise rules. Mm. So hurling is a unique game and it takes a, a certain set of skills and you only have to look around the country and there's a lots of people from, from different cultures and different countries taking it up now. And I, I think if it did go Olympic, it would only increase the popularity of hurling because sadly GEA is losing out at the moment to other sports i.e. rugby, soccer and that's a lot to do with the premiership so if we went global and it was on television and people said oh my god you know all right, you mightn't get a very good hurling team out of we'd say you know Mm. China or something but at least they'd be giving it a go and and if it, it would be a start and then the expatriates who are around the world would take a better pride and you'd never know it could develop into something that would be bigger than not not as big as Katie Taylor but as popular as and do you like the idea of skateboarding and surfing? No. <laughs> no. Why not? And I was watching three-man basketball. What's that about? Like, that's, that's, that's silly. <laughs> that's just a silly sport, you know. Um, the skateboarding, you know. But then again, I suppose the Olympics, uh, when the Olympics started off first, it was just a guy that ran a marathon to deliver a message or something to a king. That's how it started. And yeah. it developed into so much more, you know. But skateboarding, definitely. It's not... It, 
skateboard's a hobby, it's not a sport. But then again, I could be wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, Fimber, thanks so much. What do you think, listeners? Do you think that GAA should be made a sport at the Olymp- Olympics? 1850-715-996-083-396-96-96. I'm also joined by Gavin O'Donovan on this. Gavin, good morning. How are you, Chiefie? I'm very well, I'm very well. Do you think GAA should be going to the Olympics? Oh, definitely not. No, I don't think it's a good idea at all, to be honest with you. Why not? Because I think, in all fairness, the Olympics, if I'm to think of the Olympics, I always think of track and field events. I think of the rowing, I think of the boxing, the swimming, you know, these Mm. sports, this is their one main event to showcase to the world their talents, you know. And I think when you have the likes of, if the GA gets into it, you have the golf that was in it there in in Brazil and now they're on about surfing and all this all these sports as well. I think it takes away from the track and field events, you know. So do you think that like the likes of GAA, skateboarding, surfing have no place at all in the Olympics? N- not in the Olympics, no, because I'd, I'd, like, I'd, I'd like to know the rationale behind it. Is it, uh, is it to highlight Gaelic games and make it kind of worldwide? Mm. If, that, if that was the case, like once the All-Orland series is out of the way, and if they're looking for a way to reward players at the end of the year, wouldn't that could be a separate event again, you know, with all the advertising and marketing around these days, like mm. they could they could have some could you imagine now having um, a hurling match or a football match over in Sydney or in Melbourne now in the MGN? It'd be a sellout. It'd be mm. a great way for the for for the Irish and the Australians to see it. You could have something in uh, Beijing or you could have something in America or South America. You know, like if you were to think about it, like could you imagine, oh, Michal Martin, or sorry, not Michal Martin, Michal Murahortig in a commentary box, <laughs> and he's there. You're very welcome here to this Olympic senior hurling semi-final between Ecuadorian Guinea and Morocco. <laughs> it's not going to happen, like. But wouldn't it be you know, great to see it at the Olympics? You know, like as uh, Liam O'Neill was saying yesterday, over 100 games played across 27 countries in Europe. Should it not be a sport that is represented in, in the Olympics and enjoyed by everyone? Like, look, hurling is is one of the most skillful games in the world. It's nearly more than a sport, it's an art. But in saying that, like, it's I think it's unique to Ireland and I, I don't... As I was saying earlier, my main point is I think the Olympics is more for track and field events and the likes of the rowing, no, the boxing and the swimming and the marathons and stuff like that. I think it takes away from those those athletes. I think it's a bit disrespectful to them when you when it when all the track and field events are kind of sidetracked by other sports. Because, like, take the golf for example. There, no, that was introduced to the Olympics when they have the Opens, the PGA's Tour, the Ryder Cup, like the soccer would have the World Cup, the Premier League. Do you know what I'm trying to say? There's yeah. a lot of these sports already have plenty of events, events to highlight their their players, whereas the track and field, really, and the rowing, so this is their main event. Like, this is their be-all and end-all. It's what they dream of. And that's. I think they should be highlighted more so. And were you watching the rowing last night? Um, I wasn't, to be honest with you, but um, I, I heard about it. It's fantastic for Cork, like. Yeah. The lads did it as proud. Ah, they did, they did. It's brilliant. And are you enjoying the Olympics? Oh, I am. I um, I love the track and field events. 
Yeah. And uh, I enjoyed the, the swimming as well. It's pretty good. The medley there, especially the four disciplines in the swimming. Yeah. It was great to watch the other day. Yeah, I always enjoy the diving as well. It's something that I probably wouldn't watch for four yeah. years and then the Olympics comes on and I, I love to watch it. It's great. There's always a character or two. Do you remember that fellow from Kerry there at the Athens Olympics a few years ago? He rugby tackled the, the marathon runner. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Oh, you'll have to check that out on YouTube. A lunatic, he was a, a priest. He was. Um... Oh, yes, yes, I do remember it now. <laughs> <laughs> There's always someone like that at the, the Olympics. I wonder who they'll have now this year. <laughs> we just have to wait and see. Brilliant, Gavin. Listen, thanks so much. Uh, thanks to Gavin and uh, Finbar for their views on that. Two very differing views. What do you think? Should the GAA be at the Olympics? 1850 Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths, and more with a 12 month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. The Cork's 96 FM Best of Cork Awards are back. There's still time to nominate places and services that are the best in Cork. The categories are Best Hairdresser, Best Beauty Salon, Best Bar, Best Barber, Best Breakfast, Best Coffee, Best Takeaway, Best Local Tradesperson, Best Gym, Best Restaurant, Best Workplace, Best Hotel, Best burger. Go to 96fm.ie right now and register your favourite as nominations close this Thursday at 7pm. So that's this evening. So make sure you get them in. The Best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Gosh Energy on Cork's 96FM. Now, uh, for something different now this morning, we hear the results of the latest Irish Business Against Litter survey, which has focused this time on coastal areas around the country. And here in Cork, unfortunately, some of those areas have been deemed littered. Connor Horgan, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. Connor, um, first of all, there were a few areas in Cork, I think down around Bantry and in around Black Rock Castle were deemed to be littered. Um, what was the story? Like, why why are these areas littered? What kind of litter was most prominent in these areas? Well, the, the type of litter we're seeing there, it does vary, but in the main, the litter we see is cigarette butts, it's um, food-related litter, it's drink-related litter, litter. There's definitely evidence, for example, um, in Cork Harbour of outdoor drinking. Coffee cups as well suggest, you know, they're a, a legacy of the lockdown, if you will. Um, there was also a discarded wheelbarrow, so it almost veers into dumping. But in the main, we're talking about food-related litter, the type of litter you'd see, like, uh, when people are consuming food by the beach or in a harbour or whatever. Um, and what about face masks? Clothing items, plastic toys and food utensils, so it's quite a mix. Connor, what about face masks? I know that they were a bit of an issue with the town's survey earlier in the year. Have they been an issue this time around for they, the coastal areas? have, and we're not seeing a a, uh, a fall off in the face masks um, they were after cigarette butts and sweet wrappers they were actually the most prevalent form of litter we found around the country so it's um, and they're the disposable masks of course and they're not recyclable and um, you know people are obviously not using reusable masks to the extent that they might um, so along with coffee cups COVID related litter yes is definitely in evidence in our survey 
And apart from being unsightly, these items, like the face masks, like the cigarette books, but they're obviously causing damage to the area as well. Well, they are. I mean, you know, the majority of the litter items we find are plastics. And that starts even with the cigarette butts. People may not realise, but the filters in cigarette butts are essentially single-use plastic. And like all plastics, they pose a real danger to our sea life. They break down in the sea. Um, the sea life feed on them and they are, are killed by them. Um, as well as that cigarette butts, a single butt can contaminate up to 200 litres of water. So we shouldn't look, when we're talking about litter at the beach, we shouldn't just be thinking about tourism or about having a, a nice environment for people to to um, to play in. It, we're talking about a real threat to our pal- planet and a way of life. So this is like the new side of litter that we're only discovering about. And Connor, how much of a responsibility do the local authorities play in this? Like, are there enough bins in these areas? Um, well, I think the general feedback we've got from the Antashka reports for the different sites is that the uh, the local authorities have upped their game now. I mean, obviously, it was clear that staycationing was going to be at record levels this year. That was going to put a lot of pressure on our beaches. And as a result, we have seen improved facilities, improved bins, temporary bins as well to cater for large numbers of people, mm. as well as better signage at these sites. So um, certainly for those areas that did well, there was evidence that the local authority invested in it. So that might be something for Cork County Council to bear in mind with those areas that didn't fare well. And the areas that didn't fare well, moderately littered was Kinsale Harbour, littered was Bantry Harbour, Castletown Bear Harbour and heavily littered was Cork Harbour around Blackrock Castle and White Bay Beach. So what would you advise to, um, I suppose, to the local authorities and to the public to try and improve these areas? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, to the general public, we say that, um, especially when beaches are busy, you need to be prepared to take your waste back home with you. People don't do that. They have some expectation that there's going to be bins aplenty, even when the beaches are thronged. That's clearly not going to be the case. So people have to have a mindset where they prepare to take their waste home with them. Um, From the point of view of uh, uh, the local authorities, they need to be prepared for these beaches being used more and more. They need to install more facilities, even something like picnic tables we're seeing. You might say they're nothing to do with litter, but they help make the, the whole recreation more orderly for people. And if you have bins beside the picnic tables, um, you know, people are likely to use the bins. It's much better than having people consume food on the beach. So, you know, there's lots they can do. Um, an abundance of bins is probably the single most important factor in helping to keep our beaches clean. An abundance of bins and personal responsibility as well. I mean, I don't know what it takes to get the message out there to people to bring your rubbish home if there are no bins there. No, well, I mean, I think we're, we're, we're visiting the beaches more uh, regularly and that may continue. So people may just, you know, learn to do that, I would hope. At the moment, I think often the family outing to the beach is quite a sporadic one. There's not enough thought put into it and people maybe get caught out when it comes to nappies and so forth. Mm. But I suppose the more regularly you go, the more prepared you are to bring your waste back with you. So, you know, I think there's, there's uh, scope for, for hope there. And I think uh, as well it's important to give a shout out to the volunteers um, involved with organisations like Clean Coasts. I know there's one over in East Cork, Ballynamona, Clean Coasts, and they do excellent work. They're out there every weekend. Um, well, most definitely. 
and, and like they're a growing force and uh, there's over 1,500 of them, would you believe, uh, 1,500 groups across the country now patrolling our beaches regularly. And if it wasn't for them, I think we'd have quite a different result from our report. Brilliant. Connor Horgan, thank you very much for joining me on the Opinion Line on 96FM. What do you um, think, listeners, about the litter situation? Do you think our beaches are getting more dirty or do you think that they're getting cleaner? Is it a responsibility of the local authorities or is it personal responsibility to bring that litter home? 1850 715 the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. We've been getting quite a few calls and texts in relation to our conversation about should the GAA be an Olympic sport. Jer has been in touch on WhatsApp to say skateboarders make more money than hurlers and football footballers. It's not a hobby. Another caller got in touch to say they get the horses to move in a weird way for dressage. It's not normal. Why not bring a normal sport like good owl hurling? Somebody else has been in touch to say we can't even watch GAA unless you have Sky Sports. The GAA should have more respect for the Irish people who supported the GAA over the years. Another caller has been in touch to say in relation to hurling and football, our national sport yesterday, we were saying about RT and Sky, yes, it's a disgrace. It's not on our main broadcaster. My dad is in a nursing home and it's disheartening to have to tell him that he can't watch Cork playing and few other residents were giving out last weekend too. And another caller has been in touch to say the GAA gets so much money off the taxpayer each year. Look at all the money spent on Parky Cueve and Croke Park. If this becomes an Olympic sport, it will be an absolute money pit for the rest of us. Every time money is needed for the international team, we pay. Every time there's a cash bonus, it will belong to the GAA. No way. Now, um, another issue that has been talked about so much this year are the restrictions at maternity hospitals, indeed here in Cork and across the country. And back in May, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, said there's no good reason for maternity hospitals to continue to restrict visits from partners. Um, He said maternity hospitals and units set individual restrictions, so exclusions on partners attending scans and the early stages of labour still apply in some hospitals. But still we're hearing countless stories of women going through painful experiences on their own while anxious partners wait outside in the car park. Joining me now is Isabel Keane who had her baby earlier in the year. Good morning Isabel. Good morning Fiona. Uh, How are you and baby first of all? Free. She's currently napping, so <laughs> I've got the monitor in front of me just in case she suddenly wakes up. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully she doesn't for the duration of the call. I know, fingers crossed. <laughs> so, Isabel, um, just when you had your baby, what was the experience like? Um, awful. <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was really hard. Dara was born in February and she was my first, so... Mm. It's very scary already when you're going into labour on your first baby. You've no idea what's ahead of you. You think you're prepared and you try and prepare as best you can, but you're not. Um, you, and basically, I went in on Monday. I had to be induced as I was 10 days overdue. Had to say goodbye to my husband in the car park. And basically, that was it. Didn't Went in on Monday and uh, had to go in, be induced, everything like that, uh, all on my own. It was scary enough. Mm. Uh, you don't know what's going on it's quite upsetting I, I basically start bawling the minute I walked into the hospital because yeah. I just wanted my partner to be there with me my husband and he couldn't and I just had to update him as best I could and I was there overnight and Dervla wasn't born until Tuesday evening I um, I had to go through a lot to get to the very end and 
the weird, the awful thing is that I got to go out to my husband twice, um, which was Monday night. I went out to the car to him, and again, then after they broke my waters, I was allowed out to him again because they asked you to walk around and stuff like that. Mm. And as great as it was, it was just so frustrating as well. Where I'm like, how am I allowed out and see him and sit in the car with him? But he can't come in with me until I'm sent up to labour ward, essentially. And I think that was just really hard to take. You know, it was a hard pill to swallow. And in the end, I had to have an emergency C-section. My husband was allowed in when I got an epidural first. And he was allowed in when I was allowed to get the epidural. And then I had to get an emergency C-section. He was allowed in for that. That was fine. We were in the recovery ward afterwards. He was allowed for, I'd say, 45 minutes to an hour max. He was there and then it was time for us to go. And which, you know, we were expecting. We knew it was going to happen. Mm. But even when we were leaving, I was holding Dervla, my daughter, in. we were in the trolley being wheeled away. And basically he was told, OK, you have to go that way now. And he didn't even get to kiss us goodbye. And by the time I even realised it, he was gone. Um, and that was on Tuesday evening. I'm actually getting upset so thinking about You're it okay. now. Yeah. And that was Tuesday evening and by time. And that was it. Didn't see him again until Friday. So we had to, you know, FaceTime where we could. And even at that, like, I was in a room with another girl and obviously with babies, they're they're sleeping loads and you're very aware the girl next to you has a baby and you don't want mm-hmm. to wake them and trying to have a conversation with your husband and, you know, get them to see the baby and everything like that was really hard. And, you know, once I got over that, that was hard enough, you know, kind of, you know, traumatising enough, kind of, you're there with a brand new baby trying to figure everything out. And to top it all off then, um, the girl next to me tested positive for COVID. Um, and uh, they, they came into her and told her around 11 o'clock at night. And then they came into me half an hour later saying, she's tested positive, positive. And because you're in the same room, you're going to have to go down, you and your daughter, and into a separate room and into isolation, basically. Um, there was no room ready for us. So I had to wait till around one o'clock in the morning, pack everything up. Um, take her, me, bags, everything, go down to the room and this is on the second night and, you know, settle it. And I don't think I really knew what was going on. I was just yeah. kind of still trying to get over the birth and recovery. And by the time I got down there, I settled everything, unpacked everything. And I said, look, you know, try to make a positive, you know, a minimum room in my own, have my own bathroom, t- see it as a positive. I'm here till Friday, you know, just it is what it is. Nothing I can do. So we were there that night and then the following day the midwife came into us around 9am, 10am saying we're allowed back into a ward. So mm. I had gotten used to the fact that I was going to be in this room for two, three days. So then I had to go back and pack everything back up again. We'll get her already and everything like that and wait. And then, so I told that at 9am and it wasn't until around lunchtime we're kind of just, you're just sitting, you know, you're hanging around waiting. You don't know what's going on. And I don't know what ward I was going into. My sister was dropping off clothes from for the baby and stuff for me. Um, and obviously, you know, they're not allowed in. They drop it off at the tent yeah. outside at the time anyway. And um, she was asking, you know, they're asking her, well, where I was in my room? I didn't know where I was going because I was moving rooms and everything like that. So it was just stressful in that case as well. And then when I finally brought back up, I was put back into the same room with the same girl who tested positive for COVID yeah. and no reason you know nobody told me why or anything like why I was being put back into this room and like I found out off her that she said she had COVID from Christmas and she flagged with them with the hospital that you know there's a chance that 
the, the traces will still be there and that she could test positive. Mm. Um, and it just, um, yeah, and it did happen. And that was the case and everything. But like, I wasn't told any of this. And I was kind of like, I was worried then going, why am I going back into a room with a girl who's tested positive? And it was just really scary and upsetting. And, you know, at that stage then I was, that was Thursday, I think at that stage. And I was just, oh, I was just ready to go home. Ready like, you know, home. and it was just so upsetting and it's traumatic and you're trying to look after a little baby on top of it and you know you just and for your husband then as well Isabel obviously you were going through this traumatic experience inside the hospital but for him um, yeah. it must have been very hard for him to be at home knowing that you were going through this he it couldn't be there to so help you hard. and he couldn't bond with his baby then as well no and like it was so hard for him because he, he said like he literally he went like my parents dropped him home because you know he was essentially up all night and just you know it was just too unsafe to you know go home and drive you know we just didn't want to take the risk so we left the car there and he got left home from my parents after she was born that evening and um, he said it was just he just got home and he was just sitting there in an empty house and you know it was just so hard for the three days and especially when I was getting moved he didn't know what was going on and I was trying to update him as best I can and he found it very upsetting from that point of view you know, he's looking at videos of Dervla, but it's not the same, you know. And like, even when she, when we got home on the Friday, like she was like, who's this guy? <laughs> you know, yeah. she didn't have a clue. You know, he was like, oh, you take a break now. But sure, she had a meltdown. <laughs> she didn't know who he was, you know. And it was just, it was just so hard and traumatic. Like, like obviously, you know, the midwives and, you know, catering staff, they're all, you know, they're fantastic and they're doing everything mm. they can from their end. Obviously, you know, they were fantastic to to me and, you know, really tried to comfort me when I was really upset and everything like that. But it's not the same. It's not your partner, you know. Mm. And that's it. I think, like, you know, it has to be said that the staff in places like CUMH have been doing Trojan work and everybody Absolutely. acknowledges that. But it's just, are you surprised that you had your baby Dervla back in February? Are you surprised that we're still in a situation now where we're still talking about it? I know, I am. And like, to be honest, I remember when I was first getting my scans, you know, the midwife was like, Asher, come February, everything will be back to normal, you know, and I think everyone thought that of it. And if anything, you know, it was worse in February for me because like even for my husband, like he was stuck in the car. There was no outdoor dining even like, Mm. you know, obviously February would be freezing anyway, but still like, you know, he couldn't go and sit down somewhere and have a cup of tea even, you know, he was literally stuck to the car. He couldn't, like, we live out in Crosshaven, so he didn't want to take the risk of being a bit far out in case things progressed quickly for me. And, like, my parents would live close to the hostel in Blackrock, but, you know, he couldn't stay with them because of COVID. No one was vaccinated and we didn't want to take, we couldn't take that risk either. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't stay with any of my family just in case from that point of view. But it was just, it was just so disheartening. It was just so, it was really tough and it's it's still traumatic, you know, it's still you know, I, I'm in a group with mums and a lot of them, you know, even those who had second or third babies just, you know, are still going, to, you know, not handling it well and mm. finding it really hard to get over it all, you know. Um, it was, it's it's so tough and I just think partners aren't visitors, you know, They're, they should be there for the labour and especially since, you know, if, God forbid, if my partner did have covid and I was I was allowed out to him twice already and sit in yeah. the car with him. So what's the difference, you know? And I know exactly. they're trying their best and they need to keep staff safe and everything like that. But I think at this stage now, you know, 
partners should be allowed in and they should be there for, for the birth for you know not at the very end they should be there from the beginning allowed in and support their partner Indeed Isabel listen thank you so much for taking our call on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning now uh, we were speaking about um, litter and litter around Cork Harbour areas Tracy has been in touch on WhatsApp if you're able to carry all this stuff to a beach or a park, clearly you've carried it there in bags. So it's not that hard to then pick it up and bring it back with you. Because if we all, I've seen it recently, there was like someone had a barbecue and left all their stuff there. I mean, if we all just decided every time we go to a park or a beach, right, never clean up after ourselves, we'd all run out of clean areas to sit down and enjoy our afternoon out or whatever. Because these people that litter and dump everywhere and leave all their stuff behind them, would they return the next day and sit down in their dirt? No, they'll go to another nice clean area and then litter that. So, like I'm saying, if we all did what they did, we'd all run out of clean areas to sit and and we'd all just be sitting in filth, basically. We'd all be sitting in filth. What do you think? 1857-15996-083-396-9696. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on this Thursday morning and we're going back down to Skibbereen to what must be one of the proudest mammies in Ireland this morning, Trish O'Donovan. Hello Trish, can you hear us? Yeah, good morning, I can, can you hear me? <laughs> I can, there sounds like there's great crack there in your house this morning. Oh, mighty crack, yeah, yeah. We're having a breakfast party here. A fantastic. Trish, you obviously got up in the middle of the night, or did you even go to bed at all to watch? No, last night now was one of the rare nights that we didn't go to bed. <laughs> we stayed up. We were fearful last time, we would sleep through it if we hadn't if we gone to sleep so yeah we stayed up last night and what was going through your mind when you were watching it it must have been just unbelievable it's like it was within the bag like <laughs> you know what I mean it was there was no pressure like we you know, aside from the fact that the poor old Norwegians capsized and if they didn't capsize then it was you know they were going they were going for that like while the rest of us saw Germany and Italy inching ahead at the start of the race, you weren't nervous at all. You were not a beast that ever was. No, no, no. Poor old Jason Osborne was going to be no threat. <laughs> so does Paul get that kind of attitude that he has from you? <laughs> <laughs> well, they always say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? <laughs> Trish, um, obviously you're all celebrating there this morning. I'm sure you'd love to have been in Tokyo, but um, oh yeah, yeah, it's 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 a strange heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking not to have been there, to be honest. Mm. And Trish, he's he's coming home in a couple of days. Um, I was speaking earlier to TJ Ryan, and he said that um, you know he has to quarantine for a few days, but they will be putting a plan in place for some sort of a homecoming. But in your really? own house, there, um, you know, how are you going to welcome him home? Are you going to have a big plate of the steak and spuds there? <laughs> Uh, more like um, granola and uh, cereal, you know, they're not big into... Paul especially has to watch his weight, so, yeah. Right. We'll be, we'll be slimming him down, yeah. So it's all granola and fruit and 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Natural yogurt, and you know. <laughs> and have I'll you be been... out, I'll have the blender out and I'll be grinding down the almonds to make um, not peanut butter almond butter and all that nonsense yeah they like that <laughs> so have you had to learn a whole new set of recipes <laughs> listen to me come here there was a time you know when they were younger when like, they'd be putting tight things into the shopping basket and as we'd be going through the, the supermarket I'd be taking them out it's the opposite now is they're now taking the food stuff so to my trolley and saying you don't need that ma'am you don't need that ma'am <laughs> yeah. Plenty uh, broccoli, plenty nuts, you know, so things that I would need sweet potatoes for. <laughs> What's wrong with a good old Irish spud, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, you can't beat it this time of the year anyway, you know, gorgeous new potatoes. And Trish, Paul, have you been speaking to Paul since the race? No. He did no, say in his post interview. When we, when, come here now, when we were in actually physically able to go to Rio, we didn't speak to Paul for about two days. <laughs> So let alone uh, over the phone, like. And he said in his post interview that he's been ignoring you. <laughs> Is that true? And don't you worry, I'll be telling him when he comes back. <laughs> Trish, um, do you know when Paul and Gary as well? I suppose we have to kind of mention as well when they were growing up. Did you always know that they were going to be successful rowers? Like, oh, did they just have sure. it in them? Oh, oh, listen to me for sure. And at the, at back in back in two thousand and eight, um, when they they all Gary Paul and our neighbour just here down the road, Shane, um, and a little boy from um, Waterford, they went to uh, Cardiff and they rode for the first time in the green jerseys for Ireland, and they brought back the gold. And after that, I started saving for uh, well, they were saying London, which was a bit ambitious. In mm. 2012. So, yeah, we were saving money all the time. That time, the poor old skivering or the credit union would let you get saving stamps, but now with money laundering and all that, you can't do that anymore. Um, so, yeah, we we always had, I always had the, the, the thought that they would certainly go there, you know? Yeah. Paul said that um, it was never about the medal, that that was never his focus. But do you think that, um, you know, I think he gives across this attitude that he's very relaxed, but obviously he's uh, a fierce competitor and he's, you know, <laughs> like he had to have been thinking about that gold medal. Of course he had. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I don't know, he just, he, just, he just wants to get out there. He wants to be the best at what he does and he is the best at what he does, so... You know, you have to give him credit for that. Like, it's not about, it's not about the, we don't even know. And I can tell you honestly, we don't even know where their silver medals are. No. Um, from Rio. It's not about the the, 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 the medal. Uh, obviously, technic, you know, they have it there and then they're never going to lose it in theory. But as, as, as regards it being hanging up there, pride the place, nobody knows where they are like. <laughs> and what about this gold medal? Will it get a pride of place, do you think? Not a hope. Not at all. That'll be probably in the boot of his car for about 10 years. <laughs> oh my God, and that's just so brilliant. They're never going to know what it's like until they'll have children of their own. They're mm. not. They're, they're young lads. and Well, they're young lads. They're nearly 30 years of age now. Um, so they're never going to know. And boys especially. Girls, you might have some hope, but not boys, for God's sake. They don't even know they have a mother. 
I'm sure deep down they do. Trish, um, do you know, obviously the whole world today are, you know, casting their eye on, on Skibbereen. It must mm-hmm. make you so proud to know that it's your boy and his, his mm-hmm. uh, rowing partner that have brought so much success to a town like Skibbereen. Oh, but they did it in 2016. They put, no matter where anybody from Skibbereen went in the world and they travelled in the, and you'd hear the stories, oh, I was here and I was there in all corners of the world. And Skibbereen. And isn't that where the Donovan brothers are from? So nobody knows the names of the French crew who got the gold medal, but they all know the Donovan brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and they all know that from Skibbereen so Skibbereen is definitely 100% truly on the map and it is big time on the map after this as well It certainly is and they certainly are and listen Trish uh, best of luck today with all of the celebrations and hopefully you get a little bit more sleep at some stage t- today as well Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM and from Skibbereen straight to Tokyo where I'm joined now by Nikki O'Donovan Good morning Nikki. Hi, good morning. Or good afternoon. Is it afternoon there, yes? <laughs> yeah, it's about, uh, it's after six in the evening here. So Nikki, um, obviously you are also from Cork and you're over there to compete in the show jumping. Um, what's the, I am. Is, is your your competition today, is it? No, um, we're just, we have a week here now of just getting getting used to the climate um, with the horses. And uh, we come start competing next Tuesday. Okay, and what was the journey like over with the horse? Um, I didn't actually go with the horse myself. Um, one person per team travelled with the horse. Um, but it was good. They all came here feeling fresh and happy and they've been having their rest the last few days just to get get a bit of energy back. So, Brilliant. And what's the atmosphere yeah. like over there today because of, uh, like I suppose, with the success of Ireland this morning, is there a bit of a buzz around today? Unfortunately, we're uh, we're about thirty minutes away from the village itself because we're out with the stables and the equestrian park. Right. Um, so we haven't been able to witness any of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of we're away from all civilization. <laughs> so, what yeah. kind of preparations do you have to make then if you have to try and acclimatize yourself and, and get ready for this big competition? Yeah, it's uh, luckily luckily they've. Um, the competitions are going to be at 7 p.m. So kind of from about 5 on in the evening, there's a bit of a breeze and the humidity starts to, to lift a bit. Um, so it's just, you know, get them out at the right time and get enough exercise into them just to get that fitness and get their breathing used to the humidity and they should be good to go by next week. And how are you feeling ahead of the competition? Does the success of the rowers give you some sort of a boost and a little bit of confidence in yourself that you might be able to bring another medal home for Ireland? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I suppose the, the thing with the, the jumpers, you have, you have about 50 nations with uh, three people per team and there's some very strong teams here. Yeah. Um, very strong horse and rider combinations. So um, I think the, the boys are their tips to bring home a medal anyway. But we see. Well, Peter Hopefully, Hines has been 
Peter Hines has been in touch with us here on the Opinion Line on Corks 96 FM this morning to say, tell Nikki, okay. all of Team Hines send our best wishes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm sure there are plenty of people here in Cork who feel the same, Nikki, yeah. and we're all backing you um, to to do well in your in your race. But um, what, um, I suppose, just for, for people who don't know, like, how did you get involved in show jumping? Was it something that you were always interested in? Um, not necessarily show jumping, but um, my dad's family um, had horses um, while I was growing up. And so I spent every weekend, every summer over there riding and doing whatever I could. And uh, then when I was 17, I moved away to work with horses. And about seven and a half years ago, I just fell into show jumping. Hmm. And... Uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and did you always yeah. see yourself entering the Olympics? Was that always the goal? Um, well, yeah, I started, when I started working for Dara, it's actually, it's my, it's my boss who is the rider. I just, I care for his horse. And um, when I started working for him, I suppose that was always his aim mm. in life. Um so yeah, I think as a kid, I think when when you're a kid, you always dream of something like this. When you are passionate about something, it's always the pinnacle of every sport. I think so. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. And is um, I, I you said there that you're a groom? Is there is that something that you would see a lot of young women going into? Unfortunately, not anymore. Um, it's it's very hard to get people to do it. Mm. Um, it's long hours, uh, sometimes no days off, no holidays. You don't get to see much of your family. Um, but the rewards are there. If you're really passionate about the horses, then mm. it's worth it, you know. Yeah. And um, do you think that it's something that you'd like to see more young women getting involved in? And how? what would you say to encourage them to maybe get involved? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think... Uh, it's definitely something the industry is missing, you know, mm. um, and a lot of, a lot of people, younger people that come into the, the sport, they don't realise the hard work that's involved. Um, so if they really want to do it, they just need to, you know, work hard and stay motivated and uh, just, you know, don't come in with your eyes closed. You need to realise that it is a, a full-time commitment, you know, and there's going to be a lot of sacrifices there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about... 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yeah, indeed. But listen, Nikki, best of luck with it. Best of luck to you and your team over there in uh, Tokyo. And uh, we'll all be watching out for you over here in Cork and wishing you all the best of luck. That's Nikki O'Donovan speaking to us from Tokyo today. Back after this. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Now, earlier in the show, we were talking about the latest eyeball results, which show that many of Cork Harbour's areas and coastal areas were deemed to be littered. And Mary has been in touch to say if people had rubbish landed outside their front door, they would be kicking up mad about it. The beach should be no different. They should pick up what they bring with them. Love the show. Thank you, Mary, and thank you very much for the comment. And Jimmy has been in touch to say, Fiona, these are things that should be taught in schools from primary right through secondary. Litter, social responsibility, respect for others, respect for environment. They don't get a mention. You were talking about a living cert yesterday instead of a leaving cert. These should be among the subjects. Thank you very much for that, Jimmy. And we were, we were speaking to the Nolan brothers who were trying to bring in a living cert and teach people, I suppose, the skills that they'll need in everyday life and not just um, in the classroom. Now, uh, yesterday, Chief Medical Officer Tony Holohan had some positive news when he said he expects us to be emerging from restrictions sooner rather than later. And one of the things I think that people have been looking forward to or maybe have been considering quite a lot over the last while is the return to the office. So many people have been working from home now for the past 18, 19 months. But what's it going to be like going back to that office? Joining me now is life coach um, Neve Brady, who's based in Grenada in Cork. Good morning, Neve. Good morning, Fiona. How are you keeping? I'm very well. Thanks for joining us on the show this morning, Neve. Um, what's it going to be like for people? Because they have been working from home for so long. Um, do you know? Do you have advice for people who may be a little bit anxious about going back to the office? Yeah, and I think anxious is the perfect word to use, Fiona, because anxiety is completely normal at any change, you know, and this is a big change. Um, we kind of had no choice, remember, way back in March 2020 yeah. when we were all just forced from uh, the offices, so people had very little time to think about it. But now that, you know, it's leading up, it's a long leading to go back to the office, people do have the time to think and, and they might be feeling a bit worried. So I think my advice to people is just to kind of be kind to yourself, to know that it's okay to be worried that everybody else is probably in the same boat to different degrees, you know. Mm. Um, and to do some practical things to just improve your your day, your experience of the day um, around work to try and ease it in. So like things like if you're, if you're back to long commute, use it as an opportunity to catch up on the podcast or listen to an album end-to-end guilt-free, you know what I mean? Just yeah. do small little things to kind of say, okay, I'll do a nice thing today among the work just at the start to kind of help you ease back in. But you're right, it'll be very different at the start because the offices will only be probably half filled, you know, so it'll be mm. it'll be very different. Yeah, yeah. 
And you're talking there about using your time wisely and I suppose for a lot of people when they were working at home they were saying that they could, uh, you know, in between meetings put on a wash or, you know, cook the dinner or whatever. Um, Do you think that people are going to find it hard now to get that balance again of trying to, you know, focus on work in the office and then come home and try and all do all of these chores that they would have been doing kind of in between meetings? Yeah, like I do understand that might be difficult, but there's no other side to that coin as well, Fiona, and that's the fact that there's been so many people who have been overworking silently during the whole pandemic. Mm. Um, so they might have put on the washing, but then they would have been working until nine o'clock at night. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's about, again, giving yourself the time to say, what's my routine going to look like from now on? And if you remember, a lot of people are going to be probably doing a lot of days in the office and perhaps one or two days from home. So it's going to be a case of, okay, how can I make the most of my in-the-office days? Mm. And how can I make the most of my at-home days? So if I have to talk to other people, let's try and do as much of that as I can while I'm in the office. And then maybe do, you know, the the quieter tasks at home and I can pop on the washing. Um, But there's two sides to that story, you know what I mean? It's not all, it hasn't all been roses working remotely. So I think there'll be a lot of people who will welcome the structure and the ability to kind of decompress on the way home from work mm. so you can arrive home to, to whatever home looks like for you, you know. Yeah, because I think yeah. I've heard from a lot of people who've said that, you know, at the start it all seemed great, but now there doesn't seem to be any difference between home and work and they're finding that a bit of a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And like I would have been working remotely since, oh, okay, for too long. Okay, so for <laughs> a long time. Um mainly hybrid but there was a there was a point in my career where I worked full-time remotely and I left the company to move to a company that allowed me in the office right because I missed that interaction and the the boundaries between the day so um, again it's just about saying okay look this is what my setup is for whatever company you're working for um, and how am I going to you know, look for the positives in both aspects of it. As I said, listen to your podcast, Guilt Free. Mm. You know, enjoy the chance to decompress. Go for lunch, you know. <laughs> like, people, please, they're opening up. Go for lunch with somebody again, uh, which is nice. And then on the days that you're home, as you said, catch up in the washing and get the dinner on early, you know. Yeah. Um, there's positives to both, really. Um, but, um, Fiona, um, the most important thing, I think, is p- some people will be a little bit anxious going back in, being mm. surrounded by people again and all that. And it's just to remember that, you probably will be tired, mm. you know, for the first few days when you're back interacting with so many people. So maybe don't plan the big project the first day you're back in, you know. <laughs> kind of like starting a new job, ease back into it. Don't don't have the big stuff on day one because uh, you won't be doing anything good for yourself if you do that. I know, and I suppose like people are going to want to catch up. So there'll probably be a lot of chatter in the office exactly. in that first week. <laughs> exactly, and allow for that, you know what I mean? So expect it and say, that's actually fine and... There's good to that too. So definitely don't plan, as I said, the big critical things, you know, on the first Monday back in the office because that's, I'm telling you now, that's definitely not going to (laughs) happen. I know, I know. And that's the thing, like, I think people have really missed, um, you know, that, that, I know we've all been able to kind of keep in touch with people on Zoom, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't match that kind of camaraderie that you get when you're in the office and the banter and the crack. Exactly. And especially, you know, I think for people who are newer to the workforce and, you know, there's a conversation happening and they overhear it and they're like, oh, I actually needed to know that. But mm. I didn't know I needed to know it. Yeah. Or, you know, you're stuck, your head down and you've got that kind of frown in your face and somebody says, are you OK? Yeah. Like, there's none of that when you're 
at home unless you're permanently on a Zoom call, which which nobody does, right? So it's that now that's going to come back that I think a lot of people will welcome. Not everybody. I know some people would prefer to be remote more than in the office, which is okay too, but I think there'll be a lot who, who will welcome the company again, you know. I myself, I'm looking forward to having company other than, you know, the toddler and the baby, you know, <laughs> seeing, seeing adults and talking about <laughs> other things, you know. I think there'd be a lot of parents who feel like that as well, Niamh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of which, the dog's about to kick off barking here now as well. So it's all that chaos, you see, that doesn't happen in the office, you know, for many years. So, <laughs> well, go to your dog, so Niamh. <laughs> I will, Fiona. I Life will. coach Niamh Bray. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. How do you feel about returning to the office? You might let us know. 1850 it's time for me now to, to remind you that you can hear all the biggest hits from your favourite festival stars non-stop. Cork's 96 FM's Back Garden Festival is now streaming online with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. Now, um, some people have been in touch with uh, regards to the maternity restrictions. I was speaking to Isabel Keane earlier who was telling us her story of having a baby back in February and we know that so many people are still in a similar situation where their partners can't come in at um, the time that they need them. And Finbar, who was on with me earlier speaking about the GAA, has been in touch to say, Fiona, we had a girl back in February, 13 nights before herself had a checkup. There was a complication and they kept her in. I didn't see her until she was in labour and our son didn't see her for two more nights. That was awful. The day of the birth was great though. I was in the car park at 2am and allowed in at 5 so I was there for 13 hours and 5 extra at the end. It was very quiet on the ward so the midwives let me stay on a good while. Herself hated it. She felt so alone for two weeks and the beginning of labour. Maternity hospitals have to start leaving partners in. Uh, Marie was in touch to say why haven't they thought this out better so there are systems to provide support when things go wrong. Surely they can create safe ways, tunnels, rooms for the duration of the pandemic. We all knew this would go on for a long while and that situations like this would happen. They should have planned around whatever contagion risks there are. And another caller has been in touch to say they are making fathers and partners who haven't given birth know that in medical eyes they are only second fiddle. Keep your comments coming in to us 1850 or 083-396-9696. Now, um, the pandemic has highlighted the inequalities that are still present for women. Women having to leave their workplace to mind children or take on at-home duties due to the lockdown. And joining me now is Sandra McCullough from the Women's Economic Equality, or she is, sorry, the Women's Economic Equality Coordinator from National Women's Council. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. How are you, Fiona? Sandra, you have a new plan called No Woman Left Behind. Can you just explain a little bit about that campaign, please? Sure. Well, um, just recently we launched um, our new strategic plan, which, as you said, is called No Woman Left Behind. And I thought it's really, you know, it's, it's trying to capture what we've been hearing over the past year and years from, from women, from our members, from women all over the country. And that is really that women want to see a different society. I mean, I think we talk a lot about, you know, that we all in some sense want to get back to normal. We want to be able to go out and see friends and, and all of the normal things we used to do. But, the, you know, the the old normal is not going to work for women in many ways. Um, and I thought, again, the message from our members and from women um, that we've spoken to is clear that we want to see a different society for women and girls uh, in Ireland. Mm. And we want to work together to achieve a more just and equal society um, and, and leaving no woman behind. 
And the pandemic has really highlighted inequalities in society. Absolutely. It's highlighted them and it's reinforced many of the kind of existing inequalities. Um, we know, for example, that, uh, you know, in general, uh, w- women kind of continue to bear uh, primary responsibility for care. Um, but during the pandemic, then, you know, women told us that uh, during the lockdowns in particular, you know, they played so many different roles. They had the role of teacher, you know, cook, cleaner, counsellor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, trying to um, kind of, you know, with, with with children home during the lockdown, uh, you know, women were looking after children, homeschooling, as well as trying to work, uh, trying to obviously keep the, the house uh, cleaner with this kind of heightened awareness of, of hygiene to combat the virus. And as well as that then, you know, obviously we had all the, the, the older people around the country were cocooning. So a lot of the work of, of checking in, kind of uh, collecting medicines, doing shopping, that, those kind of general bits and pieces, that fell predominantly to women as well. And, and Sandra, I think, I think it's important to say that um, there are some men who have done all of this as well and have been, you know, playing a blinder in the house and have been really affected by the pandemic as well. But from your own research, you have found that it's a higher proportion of women that have Absolutely, taken on all yeah, of these yeah. extra roles. And I think, we, you know, we've certainly seen men be more visible in their care roles over the past year. And I think there's maybe more awareness around the, the, the importance of care. But I suppose from from our own research with women, but as well as that from um, research on the likes of the ESRI and, and research even in Europe and worldwide, the evidence continues to to, to kind of point to that that while there might have been an increase in care for everybody, for mm. women again it was a much more disproportionate increase in in, in care roles. So what but, do we? Also, yes, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say for work as well. I suppose you know that again, the evidence suggests that women have either had to leave the labour market or kind of you know, you know, downshifting their careers, kind of taking time uh, out of work, uh, out of necessity, kind of rather than choice. And we know that young women in particular have been the group most affected, negatively affected by kind of pandemic-related unemployment because. Um, it's young women that predominate in the sector most affected, like the hospitality sector, for example. So we have a really, really high unemployment rate at the moment uh, among young people in general, but again, particularly among young women, uh, where nearly half the population of young women are, are, are unemployed as of June um, uh, this year. Um, but also then, you know, we, we, we know as well something maybe it's a new language for us, this language of essential workers who wouldn't maybe have spoken about essential workers before. But 70% of essential workers are women as well throughout the pandemic. So not only have they been more exposed to the virus um, and and less able to maybe work from home, uh, but also they're some of the lowest paid sectors of the economy. Um, So, you know, really, I suppose women entered the pandemic with fewer resources, less wealth, lower incomes, a reliance on kind of low paid and precarious work. And really a year on or, or, or 14 months on, it's clear that, those immediate kind of gendered effects have been followed by a really deepening of persistent gender apologies over the past year. And Sandra McCullough, if people want to find out about this plan, No Woman Left Behind, where do they go? Where did they get the information from? Yeah, they can go to our, our, our website, um, which is www.nwci.ie or our, our Twitter page. But also, I mean, we always welcome, um, you know, women to get in touch with us directly. We're always looking for new members, people to get involved in campaigns. We're very much a grassroots-led organisation. So, you know, we, we, we work in communities and we always welcome people to get involved and get in touch. Sandra McCullough, thank you very much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk?
The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996 on Quartz 96 FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today. Now, are you a young mum who has all of a sudden discovered that you're somewhat incontinent and are you embarrassed to talk about it with your friends? Joining me on the line now is consultant gynaecologist and obstetrician at CUMH, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan. Dr. O'Sullivan, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining us on the show. Now, female incontinence, how big of an issue is it for people? Well, it's a very common issue. Up to 50% of women who've had a baby will suffer stress urinary incontinence. Usually it's temporary after a birth and most of the time it will settle over time. Mm. Uh, But for some women, a significant number of women, that problem will remain. And then sometimes it will decompensate and get worse after the menopause. So um, it is a common problem. Uh, It's I think people are probably a little bit more likely to talk about it these days. It's certainly, Mm. you know, many years ago, by the time women came to see us in a clinic, the problem was so severe and it had been going on for so long that they, you know, they ignored it for a long time. But I think to a certain extent, it's a problem that can creep up on women as well. You know, the odd small bit bit of leakage won't significantly impact on your life. And young mothers are busy. They've babies, they've children, they're juggling a lot of things. Mm. So it's an easy problem to sort of put on the long finger and ignore for a while. But it is a common problem. And why does it happen? Well, it's 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 due to two problems, two issues. There's the impact of pregnancy on connective tissue on the pelvic floor, and then there's the impact of vaginal birth on the pelvic floor as well. So. Um, it's much more common in women who've had vaginal deliveries versus mm-hmm. women who've had cesarean sections. But actually a pregnancy alters your connective tissue completely. So that allows your body to suddenly change shape and expand to carry a baby. And it also allows the pelvic floor to stretch and expand during labour. So the preparation is there from pregnancy, whether a woman has a vaginal delivery or not. So it's those two physiological changes that allow pregnancy to happen and then a baby to be born. And does it matter about the size of the baby? Like would a bigger baby have more of an impact? Yes, a bigger baby will often have more of an impact. Um, Obviously when... births uh, need to be assisted with vacuums and forceps, that can have more of an impact. But there's also a big genetic factor as well. So women can have very straightforward labours and deliveries of small enough babies, but if they have a genetic predisposition and poor connective tissue and collagen in the pelvic floor, uh, then they're more likely to suffer stress incontinence. And Dr. Susanna O'Sullivan, is there anything that we can do to lessen it somewhat? Well, we know that um, from from good trials done that pelvic floor exercises during pregnancy can help. Mm. Um, we have very good physiotherapists as well in Ireland. So, um, you know, all maternity units have specialist physiotherapists. And I think if women are suffering from incontinence, the first port of call should be a, a women's health specially trained physiotherapist because they have specific training in managing pelvic floor uh, problems and in, in working on the pelvic floor muscles in order to uh, improve continence, strengthen the pelvic floor. Because the other thing that happens with uh, birth is that those muscles can be quite stretched and sometimes the nerve supply to those muscles is also stretched so the connection between nerves and pelvic floor muscle function can be altered afterwards. So specialist physiotherapy is extremely important. 
And you said there about a busy mum and we know, we've often heard about the importance of doing the Kegel exercises, but for some mothers, yeah. do you know, like it's not oh, yeah. up there as, as no, a list think, of priorities. No, and I think there's an awful lot of sort of guilt and, you know, women will often say, oh, if I'd only done worked harder on my exercises and this kind of thing, which really sort of upsets me because it's not people's fault. Mm. You know, it's not your fault that you didn't do X, Y or Z. It's sort of, it's a result of pregnancy and childbirth. It's, you know, it's not often fully preventable, even if you do every exercise under the sun. Mm. It's down to connective tissue, not just muscles. And beating yourself up and having huge guilt over not doing enough is not the answer to it either. So it's, it's very difficult with a new baby to be juggling all of those things. And so sometimes you'd say, uh, well, try and build it into, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, remember it, or sitting at the traffic light, something like that, that can be helpful. But again, the reality is, is that you have so much on your plate, you're not mm. going to be thinking about that first and foremost. And sometimes as well, immediately after a birth, those nerves haven't quite got grown back to meet the muscles. So doing loads of exercises may not do anything. You know, the, the, sometimes the muscles won't work for a few months and that, that healing and the nerve regrowth has to happen before they can actually function. Mm. So again, I think just do what feels right for you and give it time. I was speaking to some of my friends about it the other day and um, mm-hmm. I was getting some top tips from them and they were saying, don't laugh, don't jump, don't dance, don't run. I was like, Jesus, that's <laughs> very miserable, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not going to work. No, no. And somebody was saying, like, avoid uh, the trampoline at all costs. <laughs> yeah, look, and, and that's terrible. Again, there's sometimes a bit of an expectation that because you have babies, you're going to have this and it's the price you pay. Mm. And it's not really, there's a lot that can be done. Um, there, there's a lot of help out there. I think it's important to bring it out into the open, not to bury it under the carpet and to, um, you know, for people to talk about it and know what's available in terms of helping. Uh, and again, there's that balance between it being a sort of an expected natural thing. Well, incontinence isn't something that you, you want to have to deal with and it's not the norm either. So it's getting the balance right between talking about it and 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 being proactive to not suffer with it. You can get pads and I know a lot of people don't like the idea of wearing them but uh, would you, like, are they a a good help? Are they a good... Well, they'll stop you being embarrassed um, and of course they're helpful but again, you know, young, fit, healthy people, women don't want to be wearing pads all Mm. the time for the medium to long term. Uh, There are other things out there. There's a product made by an Irish female engineer called EVB Sport Shorts and and they they sort of pull up the pelvic floor and help compress the bladder neck, you know, internally. Um, And that can be very good for women who suffer stress incontinence with more high-impact exercises. So there are products out there as well that can help the problem, you know, that are an alternative to wearing big pads because... Mm. You know, again, yes, they can be helpful, but they're not very attractive and they're not going to make you feel good about yourself. You mentioned there about exercise. What about things like Pilates and yoga? Do they help? Well, again, they can. But I would say that if somebody has stress incontinence, the best thing they can do for themselves is find a specialist physiotherapist. Mm. Because if those muscles aren't working well, then Pilates and yoga, you can be, you know, sort of strengthening your core and pushing against muscles that aren't fully functioning uh, and you're not going to help yourself in that situation. So the advice of a specialist physiotherapist in that situation is extremely helpful. 
And are you saying you were saying there that you are seeing more people coming in? Um, do you think that um, we need to? I know you said earlier there we need to change people's attitudes towards it and get people talking mm-hmm. about it. Is there a bit of a taboo still around it? I do think that younger women are less likely to tolerate unpleasant symptoms than mm. they were in the past. Um, so I, I do feel that the, the culture has changed and there's more information out there. And we'll certainly get a lot more inquiries about, you know, physiotherapy and other treatments that are available and what to do and where to go. So I do think that there's a lot more information out there um, and, and that's that is helpful and I think that the culture is changing but again for an individual suffering from incontinence, a young fit, healthy new mother Mm. you know, it's not necessarily something you're going to be terribly proud about talking about. Some people, you know will will find it easier to talk about but some people will feel ashamed in that situation and that's difficult. And I suppose like, you know, when you're growing up or not when you're growing up but before you have babies you obviously think of incontinence as being something that affects older people and then you have a baby and you realise you know, that you're yeah. in this situation yourself and you could be in your 20s, 30s, 40s and it's quite a shock maybe for people. Yes. Um, no, it absolutely is. And it's it's sort of, it's, there's a, well, I suppose there are two main types of incontinence. So stress incontinence is incontinence with laughing, coughing, sneezing, exertion, trampoline, that kind of thing. And that tends to affect younger women after pregnancies. Mm. And again, as I say, often it will settle down and it will disappear, but sometimes it won't. And then for the other type of incontinence which is very important to differentiate is urge incontinence when you get a sudden urge and you just can't hold on. Now that tends to be the older age group but it's incredibly important to differentiate between those two types of incontinence to make sure you're getting the right treatment because they're completely different problems even though the result is an accident. So for women it's the same thing but in terms of getting the right treatment finding out which you have is important because urge incontinence is mostly treated with tablets and physiotherapy or pelvic floor muscle strengthening isn't going to help most of the time. Another thing that our body has to go through after babies, Dr. Suzanne, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And that's part of the ageing process. Often menopause is more associated with urge incontinence. Mm. Okay, brilliant. Listen, thank you so much. Um, that was brilliant. That Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan from CUMH with some helpful advice for anyone who is suffering from female incontinence and maybe was too embarrassed to talk to somebody and wasn't really sure how to handle it. Just so that we know that we are normal, <laughs> it affects everyone. Um, do keep keep your comments coming into us here on the opinion line on Corks ninety six FM this morning eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six or oh eight three three ninety six. 9696. Cork's 96 FM. You'll instantly love the exciting new arrivals at Harry Curry. View in store at Turner's Cross Retail Park or online at harrycurry.com. Harry Curry, see what's in store. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. With regards to the conversation that we were having earlier about restrictions at maternity hospitals, Kay has been in touch to say... 
but the idea of husbands being present at the birth is relatively new. In the past, they weren't allowed into the ward until the event was all over. You were cleaned up and back in the ward. I don't get all the hysterics. Come on, ladies, be strong. Thank you very much for that, Kay. Um, in regards to my conversation with Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan with uh, about in, uh, female incontinence, Sinead has been in touch to say, hi there, I'm just listening to the show, as well as what Dr. Suzanne is recommending, the Optiac brand of probiotics for woman, women has had huge positive effect on incontinence and other women's issues. They've had a brilliant effect for me and I basically have all of my friends on them now and they're overjoyed. It has li- literally changed their lives. They're available in health food shops. Thanks very much for that, Sinead. Anne has also been in touch to say, do we ever get a break from it? We give birth and we still have more to deal with after. Do the men get anything? Indeed, Anne. Thank you very much. Keep your comments coming into us. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM today and again tomorrow. That'll be the end of it then. <laughs> now, um, as I said before, the news there that um, if you're looking for a book for your read over your staycation over the coming weeks, maybe you would consider a book from a Cork author. It's her debut novel and she joins me now, Emer Ryan. Good morning, Emer. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. Congratulations on the book, Holding Her Breath. I'm actually reading it myself at the minute and enjoying it. <laughs> Brilliant. That's, that, that, that's lovely to hear. Um, I have to correct you, though. First of all, I'm, I'm actually a temporary author, so I have been living in Cork uh, a number of years now, so I think I'm kind of adopted at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies for that, Eamor, but we're trying to ignore the temporary reference there. I'm not a Cork woman either, but at this stage now I have to kind of say as well that I'm a Cork oh, woman. So. <laughs> so anyway, your book, uh, Holding Her Breath, just tell me uh, and the listeners a little bit about um, what the book is about. Sure. So the, the main character in the book is called Beth Crow, and she's a young woman going into her first year in college. And she's kind of trying to figure out who she is, as a lot of uh, 19, 20-year-olds are. And she's kind of had two very strong identities associated with her uh, for most of her life. One of them is that her grandfather uh, was a very famous, iconic Irish poet named Benjamin Crow, Hmm. who died tragically back in the 1980s. And she kind of got a bit of stick in school for um, having this connection to this this poet that they all had to study for the Leaving Cert. But now that she's coming into college... She's kind of meeting people who really adore um, Benjamin's poetry and she kind of discovers that she's flavour of the month on campus and she's getting a lot of attention for, for, for that connection that she has. And the other kind of big identity that she has is she's a former elite swimmer. Mm. So she would have been seen as someone who maybe could have made the Olympics. She was very talented, but she kind of quit abruptly in the middle of a, a mental health crisis a year before the novel starts. So in the novel she's kind of trying to find her way back to swimming uh, on her own terms So it kind of touches on a lot of subjects where did you get the idea from? So I, I started making notes way back uh, in kind of late 2013 and early 2014 and actually a couple of my favourite artists that died around that time so 
Shane Feeney, of course, died in, in the autumn of 2013 and then the spring of 2014, um, the actor Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Mm. And it kind of just got me thinking about the death of an artist, you know, the death of a great artist and how many people are affected. You've got the family first and foremost, but you've also got all the fans and all of the people who, who feel such a kind of a personal connection to this figure, even though they may have never met him. Mm. And I started thinking then, like, what would it be like to be related to somebody like that, that kind of iconic figure um, and how strange would it be for for everyone feeling this, everyone else feeling this kind of sense of connection and ownership to, to your relative. So that was something that I really wanted to explore. And Dean Ryan, obviously uh, Holding Your Breath is a work of fiction, but um, do you know a lot of it has been based on Beth's experiences in college. Were you able to um, reflect on some of your own experiences on college here in Cork? <laughs> I actually, um, I went to, to college up in DCU in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I, later, I did a master's in creative writing in Trinity later. So, um, and I, I loved my year in Trinity and I just completely fell in love with um, with the campus there. So that was yeah. kind of partly why I wanted to, to set it in a college environment. But as I was writing the novel, I actually moved to Cork and started working in UCC. So over over time, the kind of the imaginative campus of the novel kind of started to blend with UCC. So it started out as Trinity, but it kind of became UCC over time. So <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. So if anybody's reading it, they might recognise some of the references. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think the the, the, li- the Bull Library is in there anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, obviously this, as I said before, is your debut novel. Um, you know, are you surprised at the reaction it's got? Because, you know, you've got great reviews from people like, you know, Louise O'Neill, Roddy Doyle, Marion Keyes. It must be great to see those kind of recognised authors, you know, praising your work. Yeah, it was a huge relief, really. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose I worked on the novel a number of years. I kind of got it as, as good as I could have gotten it. But you really don't know how it's going to be received, you know. Um, and it was just, it was, it was really nice that it kind of got a, a positive response like that. And then people have kind of reviewed it very kindly. Um, and you kind of feel... In a way, you feel protective of your characters and you kind of hope that they'll find a nice audience, you know. Um, so it's been really nice to hear about people kind of connecting with the story and, and the characters. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, you're putting yourself out there and I just think, well done to anybody who does that because it is quite scary, I'd imagine, waiting to see how it's going to be received, waiting to see what the reviews are going to be like. Absolutely, yeah. And even even little things like, it kind of dawns on you at a, at a certain point that, you know, all of your your relatives are probably going to read the book, you know, and they're going to kind of probably see a side of you that they've never seen before. Um, so all, I was kind of processing all of that um, kind of in the run-up to the release. But it, it's actually been kind of a relief to have it out there now. And, you know, these characters don't just exist in my head anymore. Hopefully yeah. they're, they're in other people's heads now as well. And have you plans for a second novel? I, I do. I'm actually working on a non-fiction book at the moment, which is about, um, it's, a, it's a sports memoir about growing up as like a young woman in the GAA. That's kind of my focus at the moment, but Fantastic. I'm hoping once that is put to bed, I can uh, think about a second novel then. Fantastic. And have you got any advice for any um, people who have dreams of becoming an author, but maybe are afraid to, or, or, or are unsure of how to go about it? Absolutely. I think find a, a, a circle of, of peers that you can share work with, fellow writers that are kind of at the same level as you, um, that you can send them work, get their honest feedback, and they can send you their work in return. And then you kind of have comrades, you know, if you like, because it, it is a, a tough industry and it's a, it's, a, 
it, it can past publication can be difficult. So I think having friends who are kind of in the same boat as you is is so important. And I know myself, um, two very good friends of mine, Claire Hennessy and Laura Cassidy, mm. we actually set up Banshee Literary Journal together. But the two of them have just been, you know, such great friends to me and and such good fellow writers to me in terms of um, supporting me and, and my work. So. Um, I would say find some some peers that will support you and that would be a great help. Brilliant, Denise Ryan. That book, Holding Her Breath, I'm sure is available in all good bookshops and online as well. It but, is, yeah. Thank brilliant. you very much. Okay, and listen, thanks so much for joining us and best of luck with, um, with the second novel as well. That was Ema Ryan and the book is called Holding Her Breath. Now, also, uh, we've been speaking quite a lot over the last couple of weeks about um, busy mams, and indeed we were talking earlier um, about women who've been trying to juggle everything, work and home. And I suppose it's really important for um, working mothers and, and mothers who are at home and who are busy all the time to you know, keep themselves well fed and, you know, make sure that they have a nutritious diet, which isn't often easy. And joining me now is Claire O'Reilly from Glow Mama. Good morning, Claire. Hi, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Claire, how important is it for mothers to uh, keep themselves well nourished with healthy food? Oh, it's so important, uh, Fiona. Um, I went back to, to college and I studied nutrition because it was always something that I was really interested in. Mm. Um, as, as a serial dieter myself, um, I suppose when you do end up doing loads of diets, like all through my teens, 20s, 30s and 40s, you kind of end up not knowing what to eat or how to um, feed your family um, effectively, do you know, I suppose. So um, I set up Glow Mama for mums like myself who've got very busy family lives, uh, looking after children and working and trying to keep all this place spinning. Um, and for, I suppose, anybody in the same situation, when you're in that kind of cycle, you kind of forget about yourself and you're so focused on everybody else that you almost lose your own identity. So mm. um, it's about like trying to, to fuel yourself right and bring a more balanced approach to your nutrition and lifestyle because if mom isn't if mom isn't right, nobody's right. Well, that's for sure. And have you got any tips for um, for busy mums? Because, you know, as you said there, I think we always kind of focus on what are we going to feed the kids? How are we going to get carrots into this dish for them to eat? And I think very often we just forget about ourselves and you might just end up eating a few scraps off their plate or, you know, you're really tired at the end of the day and you just have a bowl of cornflakes, which is not um, sustainable in any way. So have you got any tips for uh, us busy mums you know, in you know, like any kind of tips on a quick and easy kind of a nutritious meals to make. Yeah, I suppose um, my whole like I, I kind of my, the whole business is is created around like the way I, I run my own family, and um, I try and sit down um, kind of before shopping day and kind of plan the dinners through the week. You know, mm. taking into account like who's got training, who's got you know, a play date or whatever and trying to work around it and, and just trying to do your best really. And if you can plan your dinners and then plan your um your shopping list around that. But look at what you have in your cupboards as well. Um because like we're, I think we're all great for going out and doing the big shop and then coming home thinking, Oh God sure I've got loads of that. Mm. I know I've got uh, ten things of salt inside my my cupboard like what am I going to do, you know? <laughs> So, um, yeah, I suppose look at what you have first and see what you can use and what you can make out of it. And uh, definitely plan your meals, definitely plan your shopping list. 
and just to be aware as well, like when you're going to the supermarket, there's a load of money that goes into like marketing. And if you go in when you're hungry or if you're going in with children and if you're going in when you're stressed, it's all designed to sabotage you. Mm. And like, you know, you have your like, you know, 25 bags of crisps for two euros, you know, and you're thinking, oh yeah, look, sure, that's just easy, you know, I'll throw that into the shopping, you know, and you're, you're kind of humming and hanging about like paying a fiver for a, a punnet of strawberries, you know, but like, yeah. which is better. So I suppose it's kind of have, have your strategies in place. Um, and like I suppose I like book. not to go shopping when you're hungry because I think you know if anybody's going in and they're hungry and you just see everything and you just end up throwing everything into the trolley and then you get home and you realise you've got all of this uh, snack kind of food but nothing to make a substantial meal out of <laughs> that's it like I mean I go to my local supermarket and like, uh, like you go in the door and it's like the Bermuda Triangle trying to navigate out of the bakery and out of the fresh <laughs> bread and you know um, like I gave up going down the sweet aisle years ago because I just can't pass it, yeah. you know. And I'm like, oh, that's lovely you know, for a treat, and should I get that? And all the while, I know that the children might get it, might not get it at all. Like it's it's going into my mouth, mm. you know, at like nine o'clock because I'm exhausted. So I suppose just kind of have your strategies in place, and if you can avoid, um, I know the poor children know they don't get out much, but <laughs> like maybe if you can just do the shopping on your own, and you know, kind of like be a bit more mindful of what you put in, mm. and you know, don't like you don't have to bulk buy either. You know, um, I used to be a great one for like buying loads of stuff and throwing it into the, the fridge and thinking, oh, I'll do this now during the week and I'll definitely do that. Mm. And a no plan kind of in place. And before you know it, then you're throwing it all into the compost bin and it's gone. Yes. You know, and, and you're reading the takeaway. So I suppose just to kind of like definitely plan your meals, plan your shopping and have a strategy. You know, maybe pick a day if that suits you or like if it's easier for you to go to the shop, like, you know, every two, three days, then do that. Mm. You know, some people don't. They don't need the big shop. And I suppose um, we're all kind of guilty of, you know, making those impulse buys, throwing them into the, the freezer or throwing them into the back of the press, forgetting that they're there and then like never using them and just wondering like, wh- why did I just buy that? <laughs> you know? Well, that's exactly it. Like, um, like, they've, like I have a story and it's absolutely true. And is my husband, like he went off and he, he bought like a duck. We were no vegetarian, but like this year ago, he bought a duck in the shopping and he came home and he was like, oh, and I went like what's that? And he said, "Oh, that that's that's duck. That'll be lovely." And I said, "Sure, I can cook duck. I've never cooked duck in my life." <laughs> and the duck went into the freezer, and it was a Barbary duck. I never forget it. And we had the duck for about four years. It was a it was a joke that he was our pet. And we'd kind of like I do a load of cooking, and I throw stuff into the freezer, and the duck was just the bottom of the freezer when we were moving house. You know, so um, like you know, it's great to like do batch cooking, and it, like that sounds wonderful. And but if that does not suit your life, and if you don't eat stuff out of the freezer, then there's no point in batch cooking. So I thought it's kind of really to decide kind of how how to best strategize your nutrition according to your family, and that's what Glowman is all about. It's working um, about your what lifestyle you have. And mm. taking all that into account, and it's not just kind of like a one size fits all. It's very much a bespoke plan for you and your family. So I suppose the the key piece of advice, um, Claire, really is to to plan ahead for your week, make out a few meal plans, look at what you need to make those lunches and those dinners, and um, whether it's a packed lunch for the kids and then a lunch for yourself to bring to work and a dinner that's going to suit everybody when you come home from work, um, and and go to make out a shopping list of all of those with all of those ingredients that you need and just go in and just buy that stuff and don't be tempted exactly, by the, yeah. the breads and the sweets. 
Yeah, and like, you know, what a great uh, thing is as well, um, it's that I've adopted in my own house, is that like maybe have a little basket in your pantry or your larger or whatever, and maybe have the ingredients for like a, a favourite dish. Mm. Like if it's a balinese, like you can get little baskets in Aldi and throw the ingredients in so that either if you're not there or you're under stress, like you come in and everything is in the box and you just have to put it all together. And it really takes about 10, 15 minutes. You know, it's not hard to cook healthy, nutritious food for your family. It just needs a little bit of planning and a bit more mindfulness. That's all. And Claire, if anybody wants to um, follow you, um, it's Glow Mama and you are on Facebook and um, I think you have a workshop coming up in a couple of weeks' time as well. I do. I've joined forces with uh, and rethinking of white sage decluttering and we're doing a workshop together and it's all about decluttering your kitchen um, and setting yourself up for success like I, I mentioned there, you know, just putting all the plans in place and getting rid of all the junk and getting rid of all the stuff that you don't need and just um, having getting rid of all the overwhelm, I suppose, when you mm. open the cupboards and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So it's, it's, um, it's having a proper plan, it's having your space ready, uh, ready to go. So that um, workshop is coming up on the 11th of August at 8 o'clock and uh, for anybody who's looking for details, it's um, if they want to join my Glow Mama Facebook page, and I'm on Instagram as well at Glowmama2020. Brilliant, Claire. Thank you so much for all of that advice and all those tips. Hopefully our listeners will find them helpful. I know I will. But um, yeah, and coming up after the break, we'll be looking, we'll be listening to a story from a Cork mother who um, experienced the long-term effects of COVID. In relation to the conversation that we had yesterday about uh, the Cork match being shown on Sky, um, one of our listeners has been in touch to say, Hi Fiona, getting back to yesterday about the matches being played on RTE. Of course they should, they were before. I watched the Cork game last night against Limerick on TG Car and just to wish the lads the very best in their next game and also the lads who won gold last night. Thank you very much for getting in touch with us on 1850 Now, um, earlier on this morning, I was speaking to uh, Professor Louise Crowley from Cork. Now, earlier or last year, towards the end of last year, she was diagnosed with COVID-19 and the mother of three has been telling me about her experience. Professor Louise Crowley, um, you have been speaking this week about having contracted COVID yourself back in December. What was the experience like for yourself? Uh, Well, Fiona, I suppose it's it's sometimes hard to put in words the extent of um, the trauma involved, the challenge into my health, uh, my physical health, obviously, primarily, but also the experience of 50 days isolation um, in the high dependency unit in the CUH. Obviously, it was uh, in the middle of the pandemic, so there was no visitors allowed. So I didn't see my husband or three kids for all of that time, which obviously is really difficult in itself, but also... I suppose the fear that, that you have when you're isolated like that and you know that you're facing a life-challenging situation um, and then all the medical issues that I faced whilst there and very much ongoing since then. Because you had been so careful all along to try and avoid contracting it because you did have an underlying condition yourself, didn't you? Yeah, so I suppose the, the irony of being so well-behaved since early March, in fact, I approached my boss before the 13th of March, before the country shut down, about a week or two in advance, knowing how vulnerable I was, mm. uh, I have lupus, um, and uh, which puts me in a very compromised position. I've been on um, immunosuppressants since 1993, and so I knew to take kind of proactive steps ever before 
kind of the nation was told to shut down and I had, you know, that I had permission to work from home immediately. And so from that time in very early March, I, let's just say I didn't do a, gro- I haven't done a grocery shop since. I very much cut myself off from, from society, knowing that I had to stay safe, that I couldn't be exposed to even the possibility of, of COVID. And obviously that had repercussions for my kids who were incredibly wary of their importance of being safe. And so, you know, not going into houses of friends and not going into the car with, you know, you know, no no carpooling and all that kind of stuff. They mm. were very careful. So we lived in a sort of a bubble all the way through to make sure I was safe and not exposed. So when I did take a few falls in early November and had to be brought to UH in an ambulance, little did I know that it was going to be within the hospital setting that actually I was going to unfortunately um, contract COVID. And so that, that was very, I suppose, difficult uh, given all the safety precautions I'd taken over the course of that those seven or eight months but it was what it was um, and I contracted it in the CUH yeah. And if you were in hospital for 50 days you were obviously very very ill at the time Yeah so I mean obviously I went in with the fractures first day but once I contracted COVID um, within a few days it became obvious that it was very serious so I was in a, a special room you know um, a sealed room and uh, it started affecting all parts of my body so Obviously, the, the lungs were the main problem insofar as I literally couldn't breathe. And um, I had a lung collapse at one stage and uh, bilateral pneumonia. And so I was on, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the very strong COVID breathing machine. They were trying to whether to put me in ICU or not, but because I'm so vulnerable that, you know, the idea of um, putting me through that whole process would, would f- further challenge my body. So I stayed on this high intensity oxygen mask for 10 days and 10 nights, 24-7, sleeping, sitting up when I could sleep um, and it was just really intense. I often say it was like sticking your head out of the car in the motorway, you know, the mm. oxygen's being blasted to keep me going, to try and keep my lungs functioning to the point that it actually burst my esophagus um, towards the end of it, which led to its own issues about not being able to eat and having to be fed through a, a, pick, in, a pick line in my, my arm for 10 days to allow the esophagus to heal. And then on top of that, there were you know, all the issues arising from you know, I couldn't eat, so I hadn't any nutrition to try and help my body keep going. And then it was the whole physical onslaught. So, I, you know, I couldn't use the bathroom facilities. I couldn't get out of the bed, so they would have to prone me, which is lie you upside down on your, on your front to try and help the lungs to recuperate and then try and get me to sit out on the seat. But I would last five minutes and then have to be carried back into the bed. You know, I couldn't sit up in the bed. I couldn't do anything. I had to be physically minded in every way you could imagine because it got so severe. Um, so in that moment, I suppose it was very frightening. I didn't try, I didn't entertain the thoughts too, too often. I'm a very positive person and kind of living it every two hours. I would just say to myself, just get through the next two hours, just get through the next two hours. And then, but every now and again, you know, the severity of the situation would hit me. You know, was I going to get home at all? You know, how was I going to recover from this? Um, now I have to say the medical care was phenomenal um, and the nurses were kindness doesn't even begin to describe the generosity of all they did for me all day. I was 24-7 care um, you know and the most intimate things that they would help me with um, uh, and just mind me and when I got low they would sit with me and reassure me and you know if I was crying they would hold my hand and just talk to me knowing that I had no one to talk to or meet with and I mean wonderful nurses I remember there was a Joanne from Mallow um, and the wonderful nurse used to mind me at night called Anita, but I never knew them. I could only see their eyes. Everybody was gowned up. Um, so it was a very surreal experience. I'm just so grateful to have come out the other side.
It must have been so great to have them there because, as you said, you were 50 days without seeing your husband and your children. And, I mean, when you're down, when you're sick, there's nothing better than a hug from those you love. And not being able to get that must have been horrendous. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, And that's when I was at my lowest, the nurses uh, and the doctors, but the nurses in particular were there for me. Um, And something I was very hard to really articulate strongly enough in terms of what they did for me and the, the generosity and the kindness was phenomenal. Um, I suppose technology did help. On my better days, I could FaceTime the kids and as I got better, I would do homework with them. You know, they put me on the table on, on the iPad or even as I got better, more better in December, I could sit there while they were having their dinner. So those moments were sweet, but there were also challenging moments when my daughter would FaceTime me when she was walking to school and I would have to pull it out of somewhere to answer the FaceTime. I had a deal with the nurses that I could take the mask off for a few minutes and give them my best, as you know, as best I could and then recover for a while after the call. But yeah, those tiny bits of connections really helped. WhatsApp with my mum and dad and my, my siblings and my friends, those little messages that I might not be able to see for a few days, but those small things had to be, had to fill that gap when I couldn't see John or the kids uh, for so long. And Louise, how are you now? Because we're hearing an awful lot about long COVID and the effects of long COVID. Did you get? Did you have any symptoms of long COVID yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. What I would say is, obviously, I have my own health issues. But what I would say now, I'm seven months out of the hospital. So for the first two months, I was on two and a half months. I was on twenty four seven oxygen. As in, I had a machine. I had the oxygen on full time, and I slept. If I moved around when I went downstairs, I had the machine had to be carried down, follow me around the place. And I it couldn't walk for the first month. Combination of lying in the bed for 50 days and um, steroid myopathy where the steroids had damaged my muscles. But since then, I'm much more back to myself. I'm working again since May. Uh, but everything is that bit harder. So I do suffer from breathlessness a lot. So I can go for a walk for about 10 minutes, but I need my stick because I'm still quite wobbly with, with my muscles. And also I get... Like the last few minutes of that 10-minute walk is really challenging. Mm. So I'm either with my husband or I have a stick. I couldn't do it like just by myself. Um, and short distances, I have to drive them now rather than walk because I just wouldn't have it in me to do anything after I got there. And then things like I'm very nauseous. Eating is still a challenge. I have some gastro procedures coming up. And then, um, you know, there's still kind of a lingering anxiety, which I'd say is somewhat maybe the medication causing that, but also, I guess, what I went through. And then just general... Uh, fatigue, like wipe up um, so I work away during the week but my weekends are very often I'm in bed, resting, recovering mm-hmm. um, and so just everything is harder and slower, like going up the stairs is a challenge and my lungs struggle going up the stairs and then going down the stairs my balance isn't great so I have to be very careful, um, I, I can't do things fast anymore because I might fall over, um, so lots of things, my body is definitely compromised and continues to be so um, no, having said all that, Fiona, I mean, I, I would take where I am now. I'd have grabbed it with both hands yeah. last November, December, because I'm back functioning, you know, doing regular things, um, making the dinner, you know. I can go to my kids' GA matches now, albeit I have to sit down. I haven't got it in me to stand at a match, so I have a little seat that I bring with me. Mm. And um, so it all, I mean, I can find ways of getting on most things, but everything is just that bit harder and continues to be that bit harder. I suppose it's quite frightening as well, not knowing when you will get back to yourself. 
Yeah, um, I expect to, and I've gotten as far as I possibly could. You know, I'm I'm great for pushing through. And mm. like so, yesterday we're, up, we're yesterday we went for a walk, the five of us. But I had to take my painkillers first, and then I had to bring my stick. So you know the way. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be right back to where I was. Um, uh, I'm improving slowly, but I do feel I'm a bit crocked, for want of a better word. You know, yeah. and everything is just harder, and it's a real strain uh, kind of day to day. Uh, but as I say, you know, I am so much better and mm. functioning relatively normally so I'll take that with bells on you know Absolutely and hopefully you'll continue to get better as the yeah. days go on yeah. um, What would your message be uh, Louise to people who you know are maybe saying that Covid, you know, it's not something to fear. You know, you hear an awful lot of people saying, "Oh, it's just like a cold." And for mm. some people, it is. But for some people, um, you know, it is that bit more serious. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one to comment on. When yeah, I mean, I'm not a medical expert, and I'm not an economist, and I see all angles of the fallout of the lockdown and the ongoing restrictions. And so, I mean, absolutely empathise with businesses and individuals who suffered, but. I think that, if, you know, you cannot overstate the danger of COVID if you get it and either perhaps you're vulnerable or you're older or even you just get a really bad dose of it. Mm. But when it comes bad, it is it is literally life-threatening. You know, I'm so grateful to, to be upstanding and to be here because it may have gone the other way. And so while I'm all for, you know, people starting back in their lives and sports and businesses reopening, you know, we can't be too blasé about that. Yeah. We still need to take our precautions. We still need to be very careful. I mean, I'm double vaxxed now, but I'm still quite wary um, and fearful, to be honest. And mm. that's not who I am as a person, but I've seen what can happen if you get COVID and it affects you badly. And I've seen what the consequences can be and are. And all I would say to people is that being respectful of everybody isn't too much of an ask. You know, take care, be conscious that you might get COVID and it might be like a bad flu for a couple of days but someone you don't know standing next to you if they were contacted through your you know faults or negligence mm. that it, it could be life-threatening and life-ending for them and I just need people to remember that I mean you know we need to keep going positively as best we can but for some people uh, it will always be a life-threatening danger and so I just think it's about respect for everybody whilst equally you know, we all want society to reopen. I would be the first to say that. Yeah. Um, and I've seen the positive impact on my kids and my husband with the GA reopening and with them back with their friends. It's wonderful to see. And they'll go back to school in September. But, you know, we have to softly, softly, you know, we, we don't need to live in extremes. I, very often the arguments are polarised. You either completely reopen or, oh, no, we can't do anything. I, I think very few people actually take those positions. People are reasonable. But it's just about being respectful and being careful. Yeah. Professor Louise Crowley, thank you so much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM and for sharing your story. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 96 96. On Cork's 96 FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan. Now, are you planning on getting engaged in the not-so-distant future? And would you like to get a traditional diamond ring or would you prefer something different like a watch? Tim Keane, jeweller. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you? 
Are you enjoying your moment in the hot seat? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't enjoying it last week. I think I was a bit stressed last week, but I'm getting into yeah. it now. So, <laughs> ah, listen, no better woman. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tim. Tim, um, you know, obviously a lot of people when they're getting engaged, the the ring is the big part, is the big thing. But are people still coming in looking for the traditional type of diamond engagement ring, or are they looking no. for something else? No, today it's all changed. There was a time when you put out your window and that was it, and that was the selection. Today there's an awful lot of bespoke work and people are looking for something different. Uh, Like the big thing at the moment is shaped stones, ovals, emerald cuts, uh, marquee cut, Mm. you know, pear shape, and then with diamond shoulders as well. Now I heard you mention there about the watch. There was always a tradition of the girl buying the watch and the fella buying the ring. Right, okay. I mean, I remember when I started in the business a long time ago when we used to be working under candlelight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that the girl would come in and they'd be there together and she'd pick out a watch for him and they'd pick out the ring together. Yeah. And, you know, as time goes by, things have changed. A lot of people have changed in their demands. I mean, now... Today, they do a lot more research before they come in and they have a very good idea of what they have in mind. Mm. In a lot of cases, then they try it on their finger and it isn't what they like. Mm. You know, it's hard to beat physically trying it on. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And is it common for the the lady to buy something for the man? Because I know when I was getting engaged, uh, I was all about the, yeah, yeah, get me a ring, <laughs> something yeah, with diamonds. No. And then he was saying, well, what what do I get? And I said, well, you get me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, no, it's not. It used to be long ago, but I mean, it's t- times have changed. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It's yeah. not it's not. I mean, I don't know where that thing in the paper. There was a thing in the paper the other day about uh, that people were looking for watches instead of diamond rings. I certainly haven't seen it. There's still a love for the diamond ring here in there Cork. Is, yeah. Yeah. There is, yeah, most definitely. And the more unusual and the exotic, you know. I mean, we sell a lot of um, more unusual exotic stuff. Like I just made a lovely pear shape for someone, and I made a beautiful oval, uh, one and a half carat which is a big stone now, mm. uh, oval diamond set in platinum with diamond shoulders. Stunning ring, absolutely stunning. You're still doing that over the candlelight, Jim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though even though now it's a microscope instead of glasses I have to use. <laughs> <laughs> and where did this whole trend come from, the whole bespoke diamonds? Fashion. and Fashion. Fashion. Uh, a lot of it is fashion. I mean, there was a time there where you had a lot of people looking, inquiring about yellow diamonds, and we have a couple of them. Mm. But I mean, it was all based on a, like the Kardashians and all of this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Oh, what is she wearing? She's wearing a yellow diamond. Must have a look for that. And then they try it on and say, oh, God, no, it doesn't suit me at all. But you know, you have to run with it. I mean, it's like uh, everything is changing, the watch business. I mean, who would have said the watch business? Like, we've just brought out a brand new first of its type in the world. Well, not us, but a company. We've just taken an agency to get it. It's a hybrid. Imagine a hybrid watch. (laughs) What's a hybrid watch? (laughs) It's an automatic watch with an electronic components, and it has a... How do I describe this now? It has a messaging system in it, so that if you get a message on your phone, you can actually tie it into your phone and right. if you get a message on your phone it beeps on your watch 
Okay. <laughs> and not only that, you can program it for a bit like one of these Fitbit watches, you know, or the Apple Watch. Yeah. But this is in a traditional watch in that it's automatic. You don't ever need a battery. What I mean by automatic is there's a balance in the back of the watch and that moves and that winds the watch. Like long ago, the older style. Mm. But now they've managed to successfully marry the two. And did they like still say it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and did they but still say Tim that uh, you know that the cost of the engagement ring needs to be three? Is it three times the annual salary? Wayne Hilton is looking at me here as if I'm no, mad. But that was something. The equivalent of three months' salary used to be, but today you could have anything. I mean that doesn't apply, you know. But I mean the traditional, the, the old traditional thing was, was three months' salary. Fergal here is telling me it's six months. Wayne's looking at me in shock. <laughs> what does that say about the, t- the men here? <laughs> I think it should, should be three years. <laughs> but I'm biased, of course. <laughs> and Tim, I know that platinum um, was hugely popular a couple of years ago. Is it still the number one metal for rings? Or? At the moment, it is. I mean, there is been a surge in, in some yellow. But I mean, if you take a percentage, I'd say 75% of our rings would be platinum that we'd be selling or white and metal white metal as in maybe white gold hmm. but they'd be white in colour and metal wise you know and what about rose gold is it no no it's very little there was it kind of pops up every now and then and you know it's like one of these things um, oh I read about and then they come in and they try it on we do have a couple just purely for people to see it but it's hard. The two strong ones are platinum and yellow gold, most definitely. And what are the more timeless pieces, So, Oh, classic. Um, I mean, a lot of these new ones, funny enough, will become classics in their own right. Mm. Like, I, I have a beautiful one now we just made. Uh, it has an oval centre and two pear shapes on the side. Now, basically, if you can visualise in your mind an oval diamond and then halfway of up the diamond the length of it there's a pear shape set at an angle like a third like so it's a three stone right yeah but it has a pear on each side and the big oval now that's quite modern and very different today mm. and it's kind of the fashion because it is different but in 10 years time it's still going to be a classic because it's simple it's elegant it's like long ago they always say simple and elegant will never date and it's true it is very true. And Tim, do you think that there are a lot of men now going and buying the ring and surprising the, the, the girlfriend when they're proposing with the ring? Or is it something now that couples go and do together? You have both. Mm. You have a lot of guys who probably I see more, a lot more guys now on their own. Brave guys. <laughs> yeah, but then the girl will have kind of, um, shall I say, pointed him in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, a few like you know? subtle hints beforehand. <laughs> well, what I do always do if I get a guy in his own mm. and he picks a ring, I'd make sure he takes a card with the number of a second ring, <laughs> right? And I'd say to him, tell her you saw this one as well and that she should go in and have a look if she wants to. Because the last thing he wants to hear in 10 years' time is, <laughs> well, you know, I never really liked it, but uh, you picked it, so I kept it. <laughs> and I guess you women know? can be awful fussy. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no, it's actually, I tell you, it's easier for us if you know what you want. Yeah. You know, I mean, from that point of view, someone comes in and says, can I see a three-stone set in platinum, please? Easy peasy, you know? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you get people who come in and say, well, now I'm just having a look. I don't really know what I'd like. 
then you're into a different ball game because you've just for the, the dreaded thing that comes in, of course, is money. Mm-hmm. Budget. I mean, if you show a ring for ten thousand to a person who wants to spend a thousand, they're in a state of panic. Yeah. They think they're in the wrong place and they're embarrassed. Yeah, absolutely. If you show a ring for a grand to someone who wants to spend, say, five grand, yeah. they're not in the least bit. They say, "Oh no, I want to spend a bit more." You know, yeah. so money can be a, a slightly tricky subject, absolutely. but you get over that. But once a person has their budget in mind and know what they have in mind it's much easier and today they've seen something or they've been on the web or you know there's an awful lot of more research being done today or they've seen a ring in a magazine or Mm -hmm. some friend of theirs or a woman they've seen in a shop I had a woman come in one day and she said I met a woman in a shop the other day and she did this most beautiful ring and she described it and by coincidence I had made the ring by actual coincidence I knew it (laughs) so I was able to say yeah I know the ring but you get a lot, you know. People want a piece. It's a, it's a statement of love, and they want something that's theirs. Yeah. Not that everybody else has, but you know. This is it, and this is it. And as you say, it has to suit. It has to suit the finger and the hand <laughs> and the lifestyle. Tim I mean, Keane, thanks so much for no bringing problem. us up to date on and what people are getting. No. What? Good luck with the rest of your... <laughs> Another day uh, left. Another day. <laughs> another day, and then I'm gone. Ah, uh, it will be a loss or a loss. <laughs> I know. Peter will be back now on Monday, so. <laughs> I know, but you're, you know, you. Thanks again. Thanks. And take care. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much. Um, and that. Thanks very much. Hold on a second now. Uh, we have comment coming in here. Uh, Cleona says she's choking listening to Tim. He's very funny, and that he is. And I enjoyed that conversation, and I hope our listeners did. Thanks very much. We'll be back again tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.